0: Jake Morecambe.
1: I'm Ellen Levita.
0: Welcome to Think Sustainability where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. How far have you gone to impress someone or how far have you gone to get them into your good graces?
1: I think I was trying to impress someone that I really liked at this dance I was going to and I Probably spent a, an obscene, oh, absolutely obscene amount of money on an outfit.
0: What was the outfit?
1: It was this dress, and I, I even bought it from London. Like, oh wow! Yeah, so it was, you know, with that exchange price, it ended up being a very expensive dress, and didn't end up working.
0: oh so you didn't get him in the end. Didn't
1: get this guy in the end. <laughs>
0: That's an example of a failure.
1: Oh, right
0: there. Yeah, but would you ever? Okay. Would you ever spend a ridiculous amount of money on a seafood banquet? <laughs> okay.
1: Actually, I've totally done this before. I've tried to impress someone with a seafood banquet. Really? Yeah, yeah, my ex-boyfriend. One night it was like, okay, we're going to do like a very expensive date. And we got the seafood banquet for two, which was upwards of $100. Oh my God. For this did
0: you thing. pay for the entire thing?
1: I, and I paid for the entire meal. And oh dear God, did I pay for it for weeks afterwards by <laughs> like not eating?
0: But you know, this is exactly what a lot of businessmen do in China to, I guess, wow potential business partners or corporate partnerships.
1: So a way to someone's wallet is via the stomach.
0: Yeah, I I guess that's (laughs) how you want to look at it. But going back to China and the ridiculous amounts of money that these businessmen will spend on potential partners um, is fascinating. And you're going to hear a little bit about that later on. But coming up first, we've we've got a very special treat for you. The Cane Toad Game Show.
2: Hey ho, Kermit Frog here. Do not his frogs oh, or toads.
0: Oh, ho, ho, A hearty welcome to the Cane Toad Game Show here on Think Sustainability on 2SCR. I'm your host today, and we have a couple of guests. Ellen Beater, regular on Think Sustainability, that's co-host. Right.
1: I think since I am the co-host, I should win this challenge. It's going to be really embarrassing if I don't.
0: I would be embarrassed for you if you didn't win this. <laughs> but, but we do Steaks have... Stakes are
1: high, guys. We
0: have a number of other competitors today. Josh from Think Digital Futures, are you feeling um, prepped for the Cane Toad Game Show? I don't know about prep, but I just want to beat Ellen. That's just my, that's just my cold now. <laughs> Another contestant, Nina, you're a regular kind of, you you were co- co-hosting around. the show.
1: I'm around, yeah. Um, I really want to beat these guys, but I feel like I have tough competition, Jake.
0: Well, let's see how it goes. And what's going to happen, I've got a couple of cane toad questions to throw your way. Some of them are true or false, some of them are A, B or C. Um, but to confirm some of the answers for us, we do have Rick Shine, who's a professor of biology from the University of Sydney. Um, he's going to be our go-to. Say
2: hello, Rick. There's a hell of a lot of cane toads out there. Good to hear, Rick. Well, thanks for your input.
0: We'll be hearing from you throughout the story. So whenever you want to answer a question, guys, you've all got your own buzzer sound. So, Ellen, what's your buzzer sound? Some That's some, some frogs. Very good. Josh, what's your buzzer sound? Okay, and if you don't know what that is, that's actually a cane toad screaming, which they, they do Very relatively out. often. And Nina, what's your sound?
3: You ready? I really love
0: cane toads. <laughs> I think that's just Nina's voice. Yeah, that's just Nina. (laughs) Okay, so why don't we get to the questions? Cane toads. Cane toads are an introduced species, but when did cane toads first come to Australia? (laughs) Josh, that's you. When did they first come to Australia? I'm going to say 1900s.
1: My buzzer's not working. (laughs) If I just make some croaking noises. I'm going to say 1970s, I reckon.
0: 1970s. Okay, Rick, what's the answer?
2: They were released in northeastern Queensland in 1935, and they've spread all the way through Queensland and the Northern Territory into Western Australia and down through into New South Wales. No, not too bad. You like, guys, I was you 25 got
1: years f- off. Do I, I, I was... win by default? Because I didn't say the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: 1935, they were first introduced. Second question. How many eggs can a female cane toad lay at one time? This is called a clutch. I haven't even given you the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's an A, B or C. A, 3,000 eggs at one time. B, 30,000 eggs at one time. Or C, 300,000 eggs at one time. I
2: really love cane (laughs) toads. Nina, what's the answer? A, B, or C? I'm taking a
0: guess, but C. C,
2: Mm 300,000. What is the answer, Rick? A single female cane toad can have 30,000 eggs. Uh, in a single clutch. So you can go from having two cane toads in an area to 30,000 in, in a day.
0: You know, I'm not really tallying points, so you, you can, you can kind of do it how you feel. But at, this is like in a mucousy egg sac, the, the populations overnight can just like massively multiply. That's why there are so many of them. Okay, next question. Third question. This one's a true or false. Cane toads are cannibalistic.
1: Ribbit! <laughs> <laughs> my my thing is broken. <laughs> um that's true. It's cane, true. Cane, cane toads, toads are, cannibalistic. are cannibalistic.
2: All right, let's see. Cane toad Tadpoles are cannibalistic. Cane-toed oh. tadpoles, oh. though. Oh. You're
0: halfway there. That was a um, trick question. That's a trick
1: question. It is Semantics. a trick question. But
2: I'm going to give
0: that to you anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, thanks. the cane-toed tadpoles, once they're in a pool of water, can actually detect one another. And as competition or a survival of the fittest, they eat the other eggs that are in certain Ooh. water beds. So the t- tadpoles are where it's all going down. Okay, final question. This one's a weird one. So have your buzzers ready. True or False. Cane toads can develop arthritis. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Josh, I'm, I'm assuming that ribbit was, a, yeah, was an that attempt. Was so, true or false? Can they develop arthritis?
2: True. It's the only frog in the world that gets spinal arthritis because <laughs> they're pushing their bodies to become invasion machines, and frankly, a toad's body really isn't meant to be sprinting across Australia at the rate that these guys have been going.
1: Do, do we give them like little little um, tubes of Voltaren to rub into their joints? <laughs>
2: cane toad to- Voltaren. But
0: the, the thing that's interesting about this is it not, it's not every single cane toad that can get it. It's a specific type of cane toad that can develop spinal so arthritis. So the ones that push themselves the hardest.
2: You've got these road warriors at the front. They run down the road rather than across the bush because it's quicker to run down the road. Mm-hmm. They're different shape, they're different behaviour, they're different physiology. Uh, they do everything they can to disperse very, very rapidly, even though they're probably heading off towards a pretty unpleasant end.
0: Meep, meep. <laughs> the individuals at the
2: front are the ones that are inflicting the damage because most of the ecological damage from cane toads occurs when they first arrive. So it's these long-legged, slim-bodied, fast-moving, very active, very bold creatures. But on the invasion front, in fact, reproductive rates are very low. Clutches are large, but what's happening on the invasion front is the individuals at the invasion front, they've really stopped doing anything that slows them down, and one of the things that slows you down is reproducing.
0: Wow. How about now to go on to the controlling of the spread of these mammoth k-toads or even just cane toads in general? You said that it starts with the tadpoles.
2: People have put a lot of effort into trying to control cane toads. And mostly they go out in there and they pick up the adults. And you can do that at night, but you're not going to get all of them. And even if you just miss a few, the fact that a clutch can consist of 30,000 eggs means that toads will always be able to reproduce quicker and replace themselves faster than you can take them out. So in order to control cane toads and reduce their numbers, we have to stop them breeding. And we have discovered that there are actually some vulnerabilities there and it looks pretty encouraging. What are those
0: vulnerabilities?
2: Well, the first discovery was the discovery that cane toad tadpoles are cannibalistic. So that if the cane toad uh, tadpoles are living in a pond and a female cane toad comes down and lays her eggs, What the existing tadpoles do is they race across, they detect those eggs very quickly, and they race across and they start to kill them and eat them. That immediately suggested to us that there must be a chemical cue. And after a lot of work, we discovered that the magic chemical that the cane toad tadpole detects is the poison that the female toad is putting into the eggs. So you can squeeze the shoulder glands of an adult cane toad, put that poison into a funnel trap, and Cane toad tadpoles will come streaming in, thinking that there's a newly laid clutch of eggs, and so you can catch them and you can eliminate them. And the other cane toad tadpoles
0: can sense it because they have it themselves. Is that is that how they sense it? The poison? I think
2: you'll have to ask a cane toad tadpole that. I mean, this is <laughs> this is a tiny little thing that looks like a you know, a little bunch of snot. I mean, it's amazing to me that it has the sophistication, but it clearly somewhere there in its little brain it is able to detect that particular molecule now certainly it has that molecule in its own body and maybe there is some sort of self-comparison there that enables it to do it but somehow or other these guys are just amazingly selective and ludicrously enthusiastic once they detect the scent of a bufagenin molecule this toxin they're off and they're looking for it as fast as they can go
0: do you think we will get to that point where we have eradicated them
2: from the landscape of australia I think there's absolutely no hope that we will ever eradicate cane toads from Australia. They are a superb invader. They have done remarkably well. They have adapted to the harsh conditions of the Australian continent. And the goannas, the quolls, the freshwater crocodiles, things like this, are really important animals within an ecosystem. So what's happened is the toads have marched through, by killing all these predators, they're really destabilising the ecological dynamics of a lot of those systems. But I think we're getting to the point with some of our pheromonal methods now, the tadpole poison, we've shown the method and uh, taught uh, community groups across Australia how to do it. And they have pulled out literally millions of cane toad tadpoles from natural water bodies. You can eradicate them. Um, it takes a lot of work, but if you're prepared to put the effort in, we now have a weapon that can stop cane toads from breeding.
0: That's Rick Shine. He's a professor of biology from the University of Sydney. And a big cheers to Josh and Nina for playing the cane toad game show at the beginning of that. I'm
1: pretty sure I won.
0: You eat a lot of fish, Ellen.
1: Oh, I love, 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 love love fish.
0: Does this come as a surprise to you that each year you're ingesting, by an Australian average, 25 kilos of seafood? over the course of the 25 year.
1: 25 kilos. That's... Excluding
0: <laughs> other proteins that you eat. That, 25, 25 yeah, kilos. That's,
1: that's almost half my body weight.
0: Yeah. yeah. And times this by the population of Australia. But what's even crazier, if you go to a place like China, the average per the Chinese standard is 33 kilos of seafood <sighs> per head. That's crazy. Um, across the entire country. And their population, I don't know how many times you have to multiply it against ours with the amount of people. This is... A massive it, thing.
1: I just can't imagine there being enough fish in the ocean for us to consume that amount of fish.
0: But the reason seafood consumption is so high in China is because of these things called seafood banquets, um, which include more than your standard fish and prawns on the menu.
3: Yeah, I've been to lots of banquets, generally not the very high-end ones, and yeah, we wouldn't be eating the, the high-end seafood so much. But, uh, this is Michael Fabini. Michael is from the University
0: of Technology, Sydney and has done a lot of research into Chinese seafood consumption.
3: And he's flashing back to when he used to live in China. Yeah, I went out regularly with, with friends, with work colleagues and so on. Sampled all sorts of, of different things. What was the weirdest? Yeah. Well, I've, I've ate plenty of uh, sea cucumber, which I got quite used to in the end. But What, what do they taste like? like what does a sea
0: cucumber taste like?
3: Uh, I guess you could say they're a bit like a sponge in that they taste like whatever you cook them in. So a little bit like tofu in that you, know, you can cook, and get, cook it in a certain type of sauce and chewy and gluggy and you know, if you cook them in a nice sauce then they'll, they'll taste quite nice. To get ahead in Chinese professional contexts, It's typical to, to go out and uh, eat a meal together and in higher end professional context, very rich people, uh, they'll go out and uh, essentially eat a seafood banquet together. In these banquets they'll eat a a range of dishes and there's certain types of seafood dishes that typically need to get served shark fin uh livery food fish so coral trout that get exported from australia and so on coral trout yeah so these are uh, groupers they're caught in northern australia and exported into hong kong and china mostly in terms of
0: just luxury, why seafood? Like, like, what is so luxurious about seafood that um, gathers everyone or the governmental professionals around a banquet? Why, why not something else?
3: Uh, I mean, there are other dishes as well that are, are quite high class or luxury, but uh, seafood's got particular status, partly because it's very closely associated with uh, Cantonese cuisine. So... Cantonese cuisine is regarded as one of the eight great culinary traditions of China Uh, and since the 1980s when Chinese economy sort of really began to boom and take off uh, Cantonese cuisine became much more popular throughout the country so the middle classes emerged, more and more people could afford to eat nice expensive cuisines and so on so uh, you saw this banquet culture uh, sort of expand throughout the country. One thing uh, that's happened recently is uh, there's been a crackdown against the high-end banquet culture. Xi Jinping has, has led a president of China mm-hmm. a very intense anti-corruption campaign uh, over the last few years. One of his main sort of policy goals has been to to crack down on on corruption among government officials, and so one of the specific actions he's taken is to really target these government banquets.
0: What's the tie-in there between these governmental officials and the banquets? Is it the consumption of shark fin or why is he cracking down on
3: anti-corruption in what respect? So these banquets are sort of seen as an example of corruption because they're basically about um, private business people and government officials getting together to to do deals and gorge themselves on expensive seafood in the process. And so they're sort of seen as an example of low-level corruption essentially. But uh, because a large proportion of what gets eaten at these banquets is this high-end seafood, um, you've seen yeah, consumption rates of, of uh, shark fin and other types of luxury seafood go down a lot in the last few years. So I guess that's a benefit to come along with it as well. Right? Yeah, it's been an interesting indirect uh, consequence of, of the government's anti-corruption policy.
0: Just to go to the shark fin again, which I think is one which resonates with a lot of people, perhaps more so than just conventional consumption of of seafood or fish. Where where are they getting shark fin from? Is that also a domestic fishing process, sharks surrounding
3: China, or is that imported as well? There's a large amount which is caught and processed within China, but then there's also a, a massive amount uh, that gets imported. So... Approximately sixty percent of uh, the global shark fin uh, trade ends up going to Hong Kong and China. What is that what type of sharks? Uh, so all, all sorts of different sharks, the blue shark, mako sharks and hammerhead sharks, and all sorts uh, as well as uh, manta rays and stingrays and other species as well.
0: Why do we prioritise certain species to be like we need to lower levels of consumption of sharks as opposed to fish? Because internationally or on a global scale, we consume a ridiculous amount of seafood each year.
3: Well, there's certain species of fish and seafood that are... more threatened than others and uh, certainly sharks globally uh, are threatened. There's eight species now which are listed on uh, the CITES uh, of endangered species of flora and fauna but as to the question of why sharks in particular I guess it's the fact that they're uh, so-called charismatic megafauna so there's certain types of animals, elephants, whales and so on, uh, sharks that that get a a massive amount of attention. because they're charismatic and people uh, are... scared of them. um, People are scared of them or people are are interested and fascinated by them and uh, want to protect them, Um, whereas certain species of sea cucumbers, um, they don't get nearly as much uh, attention. You can't think of a a less charismatic animal (laughs) than a dried sea cucumber, really.
0: Is it logistically possible that we will be able to, at some point, globally consume
3: seafood sustainably? Uh, it'll be a massive challenge, certainly. Uh, I guess the way is obviously not to uh, stop seafood consumption uh, entirely, I believe. But, yeah, because uh, you can't say to anybody that you can't eat. It,
0: it's not just seafood. It, it's sort of any meat in its respect. There are people who voluntarily choose
3: to not eat it, and then there are people who will eat it. And I guess there's certain steps, though, that you can take. So as well as certification and so on, there's... What do you mean by certification? So these are organisations that go and and certify uh, particular types of seafood as being sustainably caught. There's certain types of fish that are better to eat than others. There's a lot of emphasis now on promoting aquaculture of uh, certain types of fish, such as tilapia,
0: So aquaculture is essentially setting up controlled places out of the ocean to farm fish, right?
3: Yeah. So these are fish that have, uh, they're essentially vegetarian fish that don't require massive amounts of other fish as fish feed. So when you're talking about aquaculture of tuna or aquaculture of livery food fish, these require large amounts of so-called trash fish uh, to be fed to them. Does tilapia taste good? Uh, in your opinion? <laughs> it's not bad, but it's yeah, it is quite quite bony and yeah, no, I mean that is the challenge, isn't it? Because there's nothing like a a good tuna steak or a yeah, a, a coral trout.
1: Michael Fabini, senior research fellow from the University of Technology Sydney.
0: You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3.
1: So, when I was in Vietnam earlier this year, I saw a whole bamboo forest. Mm. So, it was like this mountain and it was literally just these stalks. If you, if you put two hands together, it was about that thick and just lots of bamboo everywhere.
0: What did they use it for? Because when I was in Japan, a, a bamboos used a lot in scaffolding.
1: Yeah, exactly. So when, it's, when the bamboo is quite fresh, they... Um, the Black Hmong mountain people, they were actually making cute little, like, flowers and birds out of the green bamboo. Oh, little leaves. figurines. Yeah, yeah. Ah.
0: Because yeah. also, I think those examples are interesting because it kind of stretches beyond the imagination of what you think bamboo is used for, particularly here in Australia.
1: I guess the equivalent for us is timber. And can you imagine making. Like a hat out of timber? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but bamboo also grows more than five times as fast as your standard timber here in Australia. So I caught up with Rajun Strethsa from the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Technology, Sydney, to find out exactly what bamboo can do.
4: Uh, okay, so this is
0: just to give you an idea
4: about what mm. doing. Let's That's
0: basically bamboo. So this is kind of like what you would expect your your standard like timber wood plank or something to be
4: exactly so what's so what's different about it okay in terms of the properties obviously we have compared its uh, structural properties to softwood species and in fact it performs better than some of the softwood species like pine right so you have this plank here what would this one be used for then okay i can give you one common application of this is when you go to some of the the countries which are vulnerable to earthquakes or are subjected to seismic activities. Say for example, there was a, a big earthquake in Nepal a couple of uh, years ago, and there is a massive rebuilding project ongoing in Nepal. and most of the buildings there are either brick masonry or stone masonry. And now the new earthquake design code requires the buildings to be properly tied up with timber, but the timber resource there cannot sustain the demand for the rebuilding. Quite often people will go for, let's say, a reinforced concrete option. But for a place like Nepal, using concrete is also not sustainable because uh, most of the concrete is either uh, imported or uses uh, the stone from the riverbeds. So therefore, in such situation, bamboo can easily be used as a replacement material or as an alternative material, which is much more sustainable.
0: What is the future or what do you see... Bamboo being utilised for as as a sustainable resource today.
4: I've seen some application of bamboo in actually producing charcoal, and the benefit of doing that is because bamboo grows so fast. So whilst you are burning bamboo to produce charcoal, but because it grows so fast, so we can manage it in a sustainable way. Mm, and then what
0: what would you then use that charcoal for?
4: Uh, as as an alternative fuel source. So
0: with the research that you've done on bamboo, what have you been doing exactly?
4: Bamboo at this stage is quite often perceived as an inferior material, so it's quite underutilised. So the most common use of bamboo in developing countries that you'll find is for scaffolding. Say, for example, if you go to Hong Kong, you'll find that there are lots of high-rise buildings where the scaffolding is pretty much bamboo. But there's much more uh, in terms of its application in housing beyond scaffolding, really. So probably one of the area that I see is where um, bamboo can be used uh, in building, let's say, one or two storey residential buildings in developing countries. And with the demand in housing in developing countries currently, I don't think using materials like steel or concrete can be sustainable. So therefore, the answer to that uh, is really to use a local material and by converting that into an engineered product using local skills. We have uh, looked at a project where we broke down the bamboo into small pieces and reconstituted it into an engineered product. But in doing so, we made sure that we use a very low-tech technique. So the method that we used was just that anyone could basically uh do it. So the idea was, therefore, to promote a technique which would be easy to transfer to developing countries, especially in South Asia or in South America where bamboo is quite extensively found but is not commonly used.
0: What do we commonly or most commonly use it for here in the Western world?
4: It's mainly used for basically architectural purposes, say for example for creating wedding arbors or for fencing. Its application is very limited beyond that in the Western world. Other application of bamboo is for utensils, like nowadays you quite commonly find lots of kitchen utensils made out of bamboo. Bamboo flooring is also quite common in the Western world now, but there's very limited use of bamboo in Western world in terms of structural application. And in developing countries,
0: is it quite a commonly
4: used material? It is actually commonly used for uh, low-cost housing, where, let's say, for example, you put a wall panel made out of bamboo and put a mud plaster on both the outside and the inside. But when doing so, obviously, there are issues related to the durability of bamboo because it doesn't last for a long time therefore you have to use some uh, treatments or let's say there are methods to use some treatments or some ensuring detailing so that the bamboo will last for a long time. So what exactly is that process of encouraging its durability? Unlike wood, uh, bamboo is quite rich in starch and also you'll find that there is very little toxicity in bamboo because wood inherently has a level of durability depending on the species because most of the wood species have toxins stored in its cells, which is not present in bamboo. So therefore, bamboo is quite attractive to borers, termites, and insects, which feed on the bamboo. So that's why it doesn't last for a long time. So to make it last for a long time, what you need to do is therefore treat the bamboo with a chemical. So if you can't treat the bamboo properly, You can easily make it last for 15 to 25 years. In terms of a lifetime for a human wanting to build a
0: house, Mm -hmm. 15 to 25 years doesn't seem like a long time. Mm -hmm. Is there really that much potential in using it in residential properties in a place like Australia, or do you think that's a
4: little bit, uh, pushing it a little too far? If we look at the uh, application of bamboo in Western world, I would probably say at this days uh, there is limited uh, scope for using bamboo as the main structural component. But you can easily replace non-structural or certain components of the building uh, with bamboo. A common example, obviously, is floorboards that you quite often find these, uh, these days in the market made out of bamboo.
0: When it comes to just other things that we use bamboo here for in Australia, what's something that you know we might use it for? And then if the average person
4: were to hear it, they're like, oh, that's bamboo. Like, do you have any examples of that? Bamboo clothing is actually, or bamboo fabric is quite popular these days. And quite often people don't realize that what it's made out of. What does it normally make? Just clothes? Yeah, that's right. When I found about the bamboo fabric, I found it quite interesting because uh, it's highly absorbent and also anti-allergic, or is, what's the proper term, I think? I forgot the term, but there's a particular term used for uh, bamboo fabric. So it's quite uh, popular these days for making, uh, let's say, nappies for babies because it's highly absorbent. Are you wearing bamboo clothes? Uh, I actually have one. <laughs> not not necessarily a cloth, but I've got uh, something here. Ooh, so a scarf. Yeah, a scarf made out of bamboo.
0: It feels, in, in a positive way, mm-hmm. like it feels kind of like if it
4: were a synthetic fabric as well. Yeah, that's right. So you won't find uh, much difference between a normal fabric and bamboo fabric. Rajun Srethsa
0: from the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Technology, Sydney.
1: Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER.
0: For more info about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability.
1: You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability.
0: I'm Jake Morecambe.
1: I'm Ellen Lee
3: See you next week. <laughs>